following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are, this is the second week in our series on the Gospel of John. Now, last week we started out in this Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Last week I gave an overview of that book. Uh, a big picture overview of the Gospel of John. If you weren't here and you didn't hear it, uh, I'd encourage you to listen online to that message because it will just give you the big picture and a framework for approaching John and an understanding of how we're, we're going to be approaching this book. It's only 25 minutes long, that message, so you've got a good deal there. Uh, so have a listen to that one. This morning we are getting into the text of the Gospel itself. In chapter 1, so I want to invite you to turn over to John chapter 1, and uh, we're going to Look at the first 18 verses this morning, which is this fantastic prologue to the gospel. It starts like no other gospel, no other book in the Bible does, this magnificent beginning. Let me read you the first 18 verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He spoke out, he cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Let's pray. Jesus, Word of God, we pray you'd speak to us this morning. We pray that your written word would come alive and testify to you the living, eternal Word of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this uh, introduction to John's Gospel, it functions a little bit like a prologue, or like an overture within the Gospel. In an overture of a musical, you have these, these themes, these musical motifs, 
that get developed as the musical goes on. And you hear at the beginning tastes of what's going to unfold in the musical. And this overture in John's gospel is like that. John introduces these ideas, these images, these motifs that he is going to expound on as the gospel progresses. He's going to elaborate on some of these ideas, but he just gives us a little hint of them at this stage, just to whet our appetite. And this overture or prologue, it revolves around the identity of Jesus as the Word. That's how he's described, this ominous beginning of the gospel where John describes Jesus as the Word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. That's the way that John introduces us to Jesus. That's the dominant image that he gives us. That's how he sets the scene for the person and the work of Jesus by describing him as the Word. And people have proposed various ideas for what that means and what John's getting at by describing Jesus as the Word and what what angle he's coming from here. Uh, So let me offer just a tentative analogy here to get us started. Uh, In 1946, Frank Sinatra made his first album, and it was simply called The Voice of Frank Sinatra. And from then on, people that love Frank Sinatra referred to him simply as The Voice. So The Voice sung, Come Fly With Me, and The Voice sung, I'll Do It My Way. And I, I, I guess that's the highest compliment that you could pay to a singer, is to call them The Voice, that they are the embodiment of a great voice. They are the personification of what a great singing voice should be. And in a, in a similar but not identical way, John is describing Jesus here as the Word. I know it's a little bit trivializing to compare Jesus with Frank Sinatra so early in the series, but uh, it's just, just to get, get us started and get us thinking here, John describes Jesus as the Word. So Jesus is the personification of the Word of God, the speech of God. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's voice. God's word, God's speech. And so logically, the place to go, if we want to understand Jesus, the word, and what that means, the place to go is to the Old Testament. Because really what John's saying is, whatever God's word did in the Old Testament, and by that I don't mean the Bible, okay? We hear the word of God and we often automatically think the Bible. But hopefully as a result of reading John, when, when you hear the phrase, the word of God, you're going to start thinking Jesus first and the Bible second. Okay, Jesus is the living Word of God. The written Word of God testifies to the living Word of God. So the Old Testament, whatever God's Word did there, whatever happened when God spoke in the Old Testament is what Jesus is. Whatever happened when God said things in the Old Testament is what Jesus has now become. So the best place to go to understand Jesus the Word is to look at what happened when God spoke in the Old Testament because there was a lot more going on than just communicating information. When God spoke in the Old Testament, stuff happened. Things took place. And as you look at this idea in the Old Testament, the idea of the Word of God, the living Word of God, and when God speaks, there are, broadly speaking, three things that happen when God speaks. Three things that God's Word does in the Old Testament, and they background the role that Jesus has as the living Word of God made flesh. And these are the very three things that John unpacks in this passage and tells us about Jesus in describing His role. And I want to step you through each of these things today, each of these roles that the Word of God has in the Old Testament that foreshadow the Word of Jesus, the Word of God in the New Testament. So the first thing is that the Word of God in the Old Testament creates. The Word creates when God speaks, things come into being. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, 
their starry host by the breath of his mouth. It's significant, I think, that when God creates the world, when he creates the cosmos, that he does it through speech. He doesn't just bring things into being, he speaks things into being. He says, let there be light. And the word of God is powerful and effective and it goes forth and it brings about exactly what he says. The word of God brings things into being that were not in being before. And what John is saying is that when God spoke creation into being, that word that he said was Jesus. God said, let there be light, and he said, let the earth be filled with this and that, and he said, let us make humanity in his image. But the word that he spoke represented the person of Jesus. So Jesus is the embodiment of this creating and creative word of God. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, the story of the creation, you don't see Jesus there. You don't read about Jesus. You don't read about the Son of God or anything like that. But Jesus is there in every verse. Jesus is all over it. And and we need to learn to see Jesus in creation. Every time God says anything through the whole process of creation, that word is Jesus. Jesus is the word that goes forth from the mouth of God, so to speak, and brings about exactly what God has said. So when God says, let there be light, Jesus is that word that goes forth, creates light out of darkness, out of nothingness. Jesus is that creating word of God that brings light out of darkness, brings life out of nothingness. And that creating work that Jesus did is not just something that happened on the first six days of creation. It continues in the present. John brings all this right up to the present tense in verse 5 where he says, the light shines, present tense, the light shines now in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus created in the beginning and he keeps on creating. He is the word that keeps on bringing life. So Jesus, the word, is still shining light into darkness today, into the darkness of creation, even creation in its fallen state, even creation in its woundedness and its brokenness, even our world in all of its sinfulness, even our lives in all of their, their, their brokenness. Jesus is still actively bringing light and bringing life into the darkness of our lives, into the darkness of our world today. God doesn't promise you the darkness is going to disappear. But he promises that wherever there is darkness in our lives, the light of Christ is shining. The light's going to shine in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Wherever there is anything in your life that's working against God's creation, wherever there is anything where life's being, being sucked out of you, anything where you're being robbed of life, anything that's depleting and draining life from you, anything where life is getting messed up and screwed up and stuffed up, any way in which life is being contaminated for you, for people around you, the promise of Christ is that the light, the Word, is going to shine the light into the darkness of that situation. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to solve everything. But in the middle of it, the light is shining. The light of the presence of Jesus is shining into that darkness of your life. There's a woman in our church who shared her story with me last week. She gave me permission to to share this with you. She went through a time when she was a teenager of going through a period of depression. She didn't know at the time that that's what was happening to her. She can only look back on it now and, and identify that it was depression. But at the time, it was just a darkness, a deep darkness in her life where she just inwardly felt so bleak and black and lost and hopeless, just a suffocating darkness. 
And she didn't know what to do with that. She didn't have people around her that she felt that she could talk to about that. She didn't think people were going to be able to relate to that. She didn't have people that could journey with that through her. So she carried this awful burden alone. And one day she said she was in such desperation she went into her bedroom, closed the door, and she's quite an artsy person, so she got a big piece of paper. And she just tried to pour out what was inside onto this paper. She just tried to write it out. She tried to draw it out, tried to communicate and express something of this darkness of depression that was holding her captive. And as she wrote and as she drew, she prayed and she cried out to God, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this? What's wrong with me? What's going on? And she says that in that moment, She heard God audibly speak to her and say to her, You are my precious daughter. Now, I'm not saying that happens to everyone. I think that's a pretty rare and special gift. But she she heard this voice of the Lord say to her, You are my precious daughter. This word of, of affirmation, this word of value that you are loved and it's not hopeless, this word that told her she was cherished, that told her that she was held in the arms of God, that that told her, spoke to her soul and told her that God was present there with her in the midst of her darkness. And there was Jesus, shining light into the darkness of her soul, shining life into a place of death and blackness. That's going to look different for every single person. I'm not telling you to expect and to hear an audible voice of God, but Jesus does this. I guarantee if you're walking through the valley of darkness today, the valley of the shadow of death, that Jesus is shining light into that darkness. He is shining light. That light may be the encouragement of someone else that you know. It may be a text that just reminds you someone cares for you. It might be a scripture that comes alive for you like it never has before. It might be something in creation that you just associate with the presence of God might just be a way that God confirms on your heart that you're loved it's not hopeless that you're going to be okay God shines light in all kinds of ways looks different for every person but he is shining light you've got to learn to look for the light we get consumed by the darkness it's overwhelming it's suffocating especially when that darkness is within you but learn to look for the light because the light of the presence of Christ is shining God is finding a way the darkness can't overcome that The darkness can't stand in the way of that. Jesus will find a way. We've got to tune into it, though. We've got to learn to see the light of Jesus that is shining into the bleakness of our situation. Jesus is that creative word of God. And he's still shining light into the places of darkness in your life today, right now. So let's learn to look for it. Look for that light. So Jesus is the word who creates. The word who brings life who shines light. And then there's a second role that the Word has in the Old Testament. The Word of God reveals. In the Old Testament, when God gives a message to one of the prophets, we often read that the Word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The Word of the Lord came to Amos. And the prophet receives this Word of the Lord, and he passes it on and through the word of the lord god's revealed god's character his nature his will his purposes his plans sometimes his judgment they reveal to the people that he wants to communicate to and that revelatory word of god is now a person it's now jesus it's become embodied in flesh and blood and jesus is the word of god so that the message of god and the messenger have become one Jesus not only communicates the Word of God, He is the living, breathing Word of God. 
The medium and the message have combined in the person of Jesus. He is what God speaks. God has spoken and his word is Jesus. Jesus reveals to us uniquely who God is and what God is like. And John explains this, he sums this up with what I think is the most profound statement in the whole passage in verse 14, where he says, The word became flesh. The word became flesh. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. It's one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith, that God became fully and completely human and remained God. And this is the point at which Christianity parts ways with every other religion, every other belief system, every other worldview in human history. The doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, that the Word became flesh. Before and after John's day, there was a whole worldview of Greek philosophy that explained life, interpreted the meaning of life. It absolutely rejected this idea that God or the gods would ever become flesh because the material world, the physical world, was evil in their eyes. It was despised. It was inherently bad. The flesh was something to be degraded, to be discarded, to be negated as much as possible. And there is no way that God would go anywhere near it. And if he did, he would, by definition, cease to be God. He'd be so contaminated by the ugliness of our humanity. And that idea that God is completely incompatible with humanness has had such a grip on the way that people have thought about this through history. After John's day, as the church was getting started over the first three or four centuries, a number of so-called Christians stumbled over exactly this idea, exactly this verse, could not believe that God would truly and fully become human because humanity was considered something so despised. So like the docetists came up with new and novel ideas of explaining this, the idea that, well, maybe Jesus didn't become fully human, Maybe God didn't become completely human. He just kind of appeared to be human. Just kind of like a ghost, like a vapor, like an apparition. He just sort of had this human kind of form. But there's no way God would really become human. The major heresies of the church over the first few centuries tended to center on this idea. And since then, major worldviews, major religions have continued to reject the idea of the incarnation. Islam categorically rejects it. The idea that Allah would become himself a human being is blasphemous within Islam. The Baha'i faith rejects the idea that God would be so degraded and distracted as to meddle in human affairs. The the, the Buddhism system teaches reincarnation, but not incarnation, not the incarnation of an ultimate being, an ultimate reality in the affairs of humanity. Christianity alone, in the face of all opposition, in the face of all counter-arguments, claims that in Jesus, the Word became flesh. That God Himself has become fully and truly human. And He's done it without giving up an ounce of His divinity. By entering into our humanity, taking on the fullness of human identity, God didn't become corrupted. God didn't become contaminated. The opposite happened. By becoming human, God redeemed our humanity. He exalted our humanity. He lifted us up. He didn't bring himself down, so to speak. He lifted us up and he restored and reclaimed what humanity was always supposed to be. He gave us back that status, that position that was lost through sin, where we're made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, everything placed 
under our hands, God's co-rulers, co-reigning priests over the work of his creation. All that was lost through sin, and Jesus has become human to lift us back up and give us that place. He's taken our humanity into himself to restore us, to make humanity a good thing again. St. Athanasius says it well. He says, God became what we are so that he might make us what he is. Now, it doesn't mean we become gods. This is not divinization. It means that we are drawn into the presence of God and we're given back the position that was lost through sin to be God's co-rulers again over creation. Our humanity is restored and redeemed and reconciled to God because of the incarnation. And John goes on with this. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word made His dwelling is the Greek word skeno'o. And it literally means he spread his tent. He spread his tent among us. It's the word used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle. The, the Hebrew equivalent word. The tabernacle was this big tent that Israel constructed. And wherever they camped, they would set this tent up in the middle of their camp. And the very presence of God would fill the center of the tabernacle. It was God's way of incarnating himself within the community of Israel. And having his presence dwell in the very center of his people. And now, says John, the tabernacle has become flesh. The tabernacle, then the temple, it's become a person. Jesus is the tabernacle of God walking around the streets of Palestine. He's the tabernacle of God, having breakfast with his friends, talking, teaching, interacting, doing miracles. He's the living, breathing, sleeping, eating tabernacle of God, embodying the very presence of the Holy God within himself. So we could literally translate this verse the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Or the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Or in Eugene Peterson's more colloquial phrase, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus has done. He has brought God that near to us. It's an incredible reality that God has chosen not to distance himself from us but to come as close as he possibly, humanly could, incarnate himself in flesh and blood, to identify with us, to be alongside us, to empathize with us. And John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. What do you think John's thinking of when he says, We have seen his glory? John was a disciple of Jesus. What's he thinking of? Maybe he's thinking of the baptism of Jesus. That dramatic moment where the, the voice from heaven said, this is my son. Maybe he's thinking of the transfiguration where Jesus appeared on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. That moment where he appeared in radiant splendor. Well, John tells us what he's thinking of. Because as John's gospel builds, he keeps using that word glory. And the greatest time that Jesus' glory is revealed is on the cross. Jesus says to his disciples when he talks to them about his death, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his death. It's a strange irony in the Gospel of John that the glorification of Jesus happens through crucifixion. That the greatest glory of God, the greatest glory of the Son, the living Word, is seen on the horror 
of the crucifixion and the humiliation and the dehumanization of Jesus. That is his glory. That is his true, the fullest expression of his glory. Because the glory of God is his power in the shape of a cross. The glory of God is his power in the shape of a cross. Power expressed through self-giving love. It's not just power in and of itself. We can think about the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in his mighty deeds and the glory of God in, in majesty and splendor and sovereignty and all of that is part of the glory of God. But the fullness of God's glory is seen in the shape of love, in the shape of sacrificial love, in the shape of the cross, in the shape of cruciform love that is prepared to be poured out for us. The most glorious thing about God is his love for us. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than on the cross. I think John says we've seen his glory because he was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And he looked up into the eyes of that broken, bleeding man. And he saw the glory of God. He saw what God is most truly and fully like. Jesus came to show us what God is like and you see it most clearly on the cross. You see the character of God. You see his heart of love. You see power but you see cross-shaped power, power that is expressed in love. That's who God is. We see his glory. We see the clearest revelation of his character as he hangs dying on the cross. That's the glory of God. So the word of God creates and the word of God reveals. And there's a final thing that the word of God does, which backgrounds the role of Jesus. The word of God also saves this is perhaps the greatest thing that the Word of God does in the Old Testament. It saves. Psalm 107, verse 20, says, He sent out His Word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. When God speaks in the Old Testament, people get saved. When God speaks, people get freed. They get liberated. They get rescued from all kinds of things, from enemies, from disaster, from crisis, from injury, sometimes from impending death. People get saved. The Word of God is a saving word. It's a liberating word of salvation. And John now says that word that saves, that goes forth from the mouth of God and saves people, it's become a person. Jesus is the great saving word of God because in him salvation is truly found. And John describes this in verse 13. Sorry, verse 16 of John chapter 1 where he says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's drawing an interesting comparison here between Moses and Jesus. He says the law came through Moses. And we tend to think that the law, in the Old Testament, the law is just all about keeping rules, all about just moral commandments and instructions and this kind of drudgery of obedience. And then we think, well, in the New Testament, that's when grace arrived when Jesus came. John doesn't quite describe it that way. He's got a different idea in mind. He says, yes, the law came through Moses. Moses was the law giver, but the law itself was an expression of grace. The law itself in the Old Testament, that was about grace. God graciously saved Israel. God graciously rescued them from Egypt. God graciously gave Israel the law. The very fact that God entrusted Israel with his precious law, his precious Torah, that's an act of grace. So there was both grace and law 
right there, present within Israel's experience. But now, says John, we have received grace in place of the grace already given through Moses. We've received grace on top of that grace. We've received a much fuller, much richer, much deeper, much truer grace. And this has come through Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of God's grace and he's the culmination of the law. The law of Moses reached its final destination in the truth of Jesus. And the grace given through Moses reached its final destination in the person of Jesus. Both grace and truth coalesce in the person of Jesus. They come to their great climax in Christ, who embodies both grace and truth together in one person. Don Carson, who's a Christian author, tells the story of when he was going through university. And uh, he met a Muslim guy called Muhammad and became friends with him. They got to know each other, became friends. They shared their stories, their different faith stories, their worldviews, and they engaged in this ongoing discussion about spirituality. And he says, one day, he and Muhammad went uh, on a tour of the Canadian Parliament buildings. In the Canadian Parliament buildings, apparently, in the foyer, in the main foyer area, there are all these engravings of famous philosophers who have influenced human law, people like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these carvings or engravings of them. And the tour guide pointed these people out, and then as the tour drew to a close, the guide asked the group if they had any questions. And Muhammad piped up, and he asked indignantly, where is Jesus? And the tour guide looked a little bit perplexed and said, what, what do you mean? I beg your pardon. And Muhammad said, well, I've been reading the Christian Bible. And in the Christian Bible, it says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So where is Jesus Christ? And Don Carson muttered under his breath, you preach it, brother. <laughs> this from a Muslim guy. Because Jesus is the culmination of law as well as grace. He brings both of those things together and he brings both law and grace into our lives together. You've got to have both. Jesus brings truth into our life. He brings the truth of his spirit which penetrates, it cuts to the heart. He puts his finger on things in our lives that are not healthy. Things that are not as they should be. Patterns and habits that we've developed which are utterly selfish. Ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of being ways of talking, ways of acting that defile the image of God within us, ways in which we've made idols for ourselves and the world around us and we're following after other gods. This is one of the roles Jesus has, is to shine the spotlight of his spirit into our lives and put his finger on truth, put his finger on things that are just not healthy, things that are toxic and are contaminating our lives and to spotlight those things for us. It's not comfortable. It's painful when he does that. It's called conviction. But you can always know that when Jesus brings truth into our life, following just behind truth is always grace. Grace and truth always come together in the person of Jesus. And when there's that truth that cuts, there's always that grace that heals. It's always followed by that healing balm of grace which says you're not condemned. You don't live in guilt. This is not about fear. And this is not about obligation. This is about embracing who you are in Christ. So let's come and work on these areas. Let's come and address these habits and these patterns and these inclinations. And let's start to make some changes and let's put some things aside and let's develop some new habits so that you can be who you already are in Christ. Not out of guilt, not out of fear, not out of shame, but out of grace, out of a deep anchorage in a living relationship with the living words. That's where transformation happens.
When we deeply internalize the grace of God, grace will never just leave you where you are. It'll meet you right where you are. But the grace of God will never leave you there. It'll take you from there into all that God has for you. It'll take you there into your true self, crucified with Christ. Always, 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 grace and truth. They go together. And maybe, even now, maybe God is bringing some truth into your life. Maybe Jesus the Word is speaking some truth into an area of your life where you know things are just not right. They've gotten out of balance. They've shifted. There's just a self-absorbed, self-centered, self-glorifying thing going on in your life. You know it. You feel it. You can identify it. You can name it. That's the truth. And maybe right behind that, you need a fresh expression of God's grace in your life to remind you you're not condemned Don't spiral down into self-pity. Don't spiral down into self-loathing. But embrace and center yourself in the grace of God. Receive his forgiveness afresh. Receive his cleansing afresh. Receive afresh the empowering of God's spirit to put the changes in place in your life that need to come. To embrace your true self. To embrace who you are as a human being made in the image of God. Grace and truth always together in Jesus. And so... Jesus is the Word. He's the creating Word. He's the revealing Word. He's the saving Word of God. And I want to just ask you as we finish, what is the Word of God, the living Word of God, saying to you? Jesus is called the Word of God for a reason, because He speaks. He still speaks today. He's speaking over our lives today. What's He saying? Are you willing to listen? What is the Word of God saying to you? Is He bringing a creating Word into your life? Is He shining some light into darkness? Is He calling you to look up out of the darkness and to see what He's doing, to see the ways in which He's making His presence known? Is He bringing a revealing Word into your life? Is He showing you something of who God is? Is He showing you the face of the Father? Is He leading you to the cross to see there the glory of God like you've never seen it before? Is he bringing a saving word into your life? Is he shining truth into your life, which is painful and convicting, but then bringing grace to comfort, to encourage, and to compel you on to life in Christ? What's the word that Jesus is speaking over your life? Whatever it is, let's learn to listen to it. Let's tune our ears. Let's have ears to hear. Let's receive it. Let's internalize it deeply. And let's be changed by it as we listen to and learn to hear the Word of God, the eternal living Son of God, Jesus Christ. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.